Hey, food people, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Shapiro, and today I have got Hawaii on the brain. And of course, because this is food people, I want to talk about the food. Thanks to both outside influences and its own native resources, Hawaiian cuisine is incredibly diverse for such a small geographic space. But when you're Hawaii's most well-known chef, everyone expects you to define it. Since beginning his career at a plate lunch restaurant, Sheldon Simeon has been an acclaimed restaurateur, a Top Chef contestant, and most recently, a cookbook writer. He lives, breathes, and cooks Hawaii. And this week on the show, he's going to talk about what it means to him to be a Hawaiian chef. Last month, he curated BA's Guide to Maui and its exciting local food scene. And BA Restaurants editor Elise Inamine, who also has close family ties to the islands, profiled him recently for a site. His new cookbook, Cook Real Hawaii, is out now. I am talking to chef, restaurant owner, and former Top Chef competitor Sheldon Simeon. Sheldon, thank you so much for joining Food People today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you grew up on the island of Hawaii, the big island, and that's where you are now. What about growing up there do you think made you want to be a chef? It was my life of being surrounded by food, uh, eventually me becoming a chef. I came from a family that at a very young age, literally out of the womb, you are taught to respect food at the highest regard. You know, it's like food was our way of celebration and it was also a way of discipline. (laughs) It's like clean your room. Or you won't be able to eat dinner. You know, that's like one of those. <laughs> wow, things. harsh. Yeah, <laughs> that's what the, my life surrounded and uh, growing up. And uh, you know, my parents—they were amazing cooks. To this day, with my favorite, in fact, ninety-nine percent of my conversations with my father is about food. He was enjoying the NBA draft, and as he was going through that, he screenshot what he was having for uh, refreshments and poo-poos to me <laughs> watching the NBA draft. I'm like, Okay, Dad. What kind of food did he cook <laughs> when you were growing up? It was a mixture of, of so many different things. Of course, Filipino was at the forefront, being my ethnicity. But we had influences from our community, my neighbors. You know, It was normal to have kimchi in our refrigerator constantly and cooking Japanese food, which is uh, my dad's favorite. So he's like, let's make some Japanese food. Yeah. Okay. Having food from his my hunter friends and you know wild boar in the freezer and smoked smoked goat and all these different cultures that we take for granted you know growing up it just seemed of what we ate when it wasn't like okay this is we thought of it as hawaii food well maybe looking back at it it is hawaii food but it was just food that we had in front of us and i didn't think kimchi was as much korean as as it was uh, hawaii so yeah And then you went to cooking school in Hawaii as well, on Maui. What made you decide to go to cooking school and specifically to stay in Hawaii? Yeah, well, through high school, I thought I was actually going to be an architect. And I wanted (laughs) to do that so much. Growing up in a family that constantly cooks, we had knives in our hands. and (laughs) You were were like, no, I'm going to go be an architect. (laughs) Going over the grill, I thought that's like, I I don't want to be a cook. But then... My brother went to culinary school. He's a few years older than me. Mm. I've seen how he breezed through culinary school, knowing that we knew how to debone a chicken, we knew how to slaughter a pig, whatever. 
And senior-itis took over me. <laughs> uh, my senior year, I was like, nah, maybe I should just go to culinary school. But once I was in there, that's, I knew that's what I was destined to do. I loved every aspect of it. I loved being in the kitchen. So you thought it was going to be easy. Was it easy? No, <laughs> it was not easy. It showed me that I couldn't just rely on my work ethic. And, you know, you had to be outspoken. And if you wanted to come up through the ranks and you had, had to be able to be creative and, and showcase that. Was your experience in cooking school focused on Hawaiian food or was it more focused on classical French cuisine? Yeah, culinary school was a mixture of both. So it was like learning French techniques and learning mother sauces and that kind of stuff. But we were deep in the moment of Hawaii regional cuisine, I feel, when it was at its, at its peak. This was the year 2000. Hawaii regional cuisine was a guild that was formed by a bunch of chefs out here in Hawaii that celebrated the farmers and the purveyors of Hawaii. Not necessarily Hawaiian cuisine. A lot of them were using French techniques. Uh, but just like this fusion, <laughs> that word was so hot back oh, then, yeah. fusion. Yeah, fusion of cultures and flavors and elevated, you know, to get it out there and showcase Hawaii on a huge stage. Yeah, it seems like kind of a double-edged sword that could introduce <laughs> Hawaiian cuisine to maybe an audience that didn't really know what it meant before that, but it also created this kind of cliche at this point idea of Hawaiian food. What did you think of that at the time? Did that just seem like what the Hawaiian food was? Yeah, it did. It felt like, okay, these are the best chefs in Hawaii and that's the cuisine that's hyping up Hawaii. I feel like the history of Hawaii is to do with that same idea of is like, how can we do something that gets us recognized that maybe it might not be traditional or whatever, but hey, we need to get a spotlight on Hawaii and create this idea of what Hawaii is. Well, Hawaii, it was this fantasy. It was painted as this fantasy island back in the day. It was so exotic to come out to Hawaii. We really went in and painted that picture of this amusement park, so to say, mm -hmm. idea of come to Hawaii and see the hula girls in grass skirts mm -hmm. and Let's watch Elvis Presley and sing Tiny Bubbles yeah. in Waikiki and, and drink on Mai Tais and eat. The wooden surfboard. Yeah, wooden surfboard. Let's eat the coconut shrimp out of a pineapple <laughs> or a papaya or something. Yeah. And, you know, that, that made Hawaii this gem and this place that wanted to be, be visited. And then the generations of, of families come and visit Hawaii and, tell of that story and they want the same you know? thing every time they go they want the thing that they associate with it exactly and it became heavily profitable mm. it fueled the state we put all our chips in that barrel as being tourism as our, our number one source of our economy so yeah so it seems like against that backdrop hawaiian regional cuisine was almost progressive it was almost trying to push that fantasy narrative a little bit, but then it ended up becoming a little bit of a cliche itself in, in some ways. Yeah, well, not to say that all the Hawaii regional cuisine chefs was doing this tropical island thing. There were people, you know, like Sam Choi that was cooking local Hawaii food that our families grew up in and showcased that, you know, and then there was guys like Peter Merriman who farmed to table, but when you put chefs up against 
what these guys were doing in Los Angeles and down in Miami and down yeah. in New York City. You think that you have to flex in a different way. <laughs> Showing off a little bit. Showing off a little bit, yeah. So with that, I wanted to hear about a few of your favorite places in Maui from the guide that you curated for us a few months ago. What are some of your favorite spots on the island? Tell us about them. Yeah, I think one of them that uh, I mentioned was Oki Seafood. And, you know, we went through this moment where poke was all the craze, oh, yes. right? So, it graced <laughs> the cover everywhere. of, of Bon Appetit. I can remember it, the, this like pale <laughs> pink color and the poke bowl on top of it. <laughs> there you go. That Depending on where you came from and what your poke shop is, that's your idea of what poke is. So I really wanted to go back to an old school seafood shop uh, here ran by you know, the Wan family. And Oki Seafood does it the way that Hawaii's been doing it for many years utilizing local fish and showcasing some fish that you normally wouldn't see. It's not salmon or is it, it's not tunas. No, they're using things like yellow spot papillo. They're using ono that is caught by a fisherman down the road. Wow. They're using different types of seaweed and uh, they're showcasing reef fish and all of this stuff of like old traditional Hawaii stuff. So yeah, go to this old school seafood spot. Oki seafood. And then what about this brunch spot you describe as freaking awesome? <laughs> so this brunch spot that is freaking awesome <laughs> is Papa Aina, uh, located in the old Lahaina town on the west side of Maui, ran by top chef alum, Leanne Wong. And all like her deep fried French toast. I don't even know what she, I think she puts unicorns in there. Hawaiian sweetbread soaked in coconut milk, coated in cornflakes and deep fried. I mean, come on. Yeah. And then breakfast ramen. You know, I, <laughs> I grew up eating ramen for breakfast more than cereal throughout my whole life. So how do you make your breakfast ramen? Oh, my breakfast ramen is <laughs> two bags of top ramen with two eggs and uh, half the bottle of Tabasco. Nice. That's my... That's my <laughs> but Leanne, Leanne does, does her in a much more elevated <laughs> way. Yeah, you lo local source the noodles and she always like beautiful vegetables that she sources from local farmers and like a broth that's been simmering for days, you can tell. So after that, you go to Ululani Shave Ice uh, to get this pillowy goodness and... There you'll get a taste of what real shave ice is. It's not not a snow cone. No, not a snow cone. <laughs> I don't know what they, how they get the ice so so soft and pillowy. It's like literally like cold feathers that is in your mouth. Mm. <laughs> in the best in the best way. Cold feathers. <laughs> soft. <laughs> really selling but, it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really selling it. <laughs> No, and they're, and then they're flavors. You know, you want taste of Hawaii. These guys like make natural flavors like lily koi or passion fruit, and uh, they're taking local fruit and making these syrups with it. Yeah, then finish it off at at the monkey pod for my ties. <sighs> I could go for one of my ties. Right yeah, now. same. <laughs> Stare at the sunset and put down some my ties. Okay, well, we'll let you get back to sipping my ties very shortly, but let's get back to our interview. So after your education and the creation of Hawaiian regional cuisine, you were the executive chef at this Maui restaurant, Star Noodle, and then you got tapped to appear on Top Chef. Obviously, 
as we know, this can be a real career-defining moment for a chef. How did it change the way that you cooked? Yeah, man, Top Chef. You know, I was very much a still Hawaii-minded chef. And even when I was on the show at first, I was like, what do we want with a kid out in Hawaii <laughs> to be on this huge platform? You had a little imposter you know, was, syndrome. Yeah, you know, I was executive chef of this restaurant, but I never cooked in in fancy places. I, I came up through a plate lunch place and I started off as a dishwasher and just grinded it out Yeah, and had this opportunity. That moment was like trying to find out who I was as a chef. Were you trying to flex? I tried to flex, but when you put in those situations when you have to like think on your toes and come up with dishes, you go back to your your roots and you go back to things that you grew up with and those flavors that you understood and you know. So throughout the season, that's what I did. I cooked my food, but then there's still yet in the back of your mind of like sheets. I'm a one trick pony. Yeah. I only doing Hawaii food. I only doing Asian style kind of food. Yeah. But then I switched up my style when it, it came to the end and it bit me in the butt. What? Tell me more about that. What do you mean? Yeah, so made it all the way to the end, cooking my food, Hawaii-inspired flavors. And then we took a break before the finale and uh, went to cook at some different places and said, hey, I'm going to come back with some new skills. I'm going to come back with things that I've never cooked before, but I know I can execute it. And then we do some food that the judges wouldn't expect me to be doing. And I executed the food, did it, and, and cooked it proper, but the soul wasn't there. Mm. There wasn't any sustenance to that, that food as the food that I was cooking throughout the season. You felt that? Yeah, felt it. Obviously, the judges tasted it, but it was a huge lesson that I could go back and just be inspired by, by my upbringing. So after Top Chef, you decided to go back to Hawaii. You didn't decide to you know, continue cooking in restaurants elsewhere in the country or to go to Europe or any of the things you you might have done as mm -hmm. a up-and-coming chef. You went back to Hawaii. And what made you decide to do that? It was a turning point in my chef career where I was like, I need to showcase Hawaii cuisine for what it is. And showcase the food that is not painted in this picture that was of Elvis in Waikiki. And it was built on the backs of you know, these voyagers and these these laborers that came to work on the sugarcane plantations and the hardworking people that Hawaii was. And man, that's the food that I do. Before we get back to Sheldon, I want to take a little detour with Elise Inamine, who is the restaurants editor here at BA. She wrote the amazing profile of Sheldon on BA.com. But Elise, I actually want to deep dive with you on Spam. I love Spam as an ingredient. I was at uh, Norita, this Hawaiian restaurant in the East Village, a few months back. Oh, yeah. Which I'd never been to. And of everything I ate there, that's like the thing that I keep thinking about. I love it when people are like innovative with something like Spam, which is like this kind of mystery luncheon meat. But I remember, I think, actually, Norita used to put Spam into, like, tortellini. Oh, my God. And it was, like, so fun because Spam, I feel like, is very ubiquitous in Hawaii. It actually took a while for me to get into Spam because it just looks so gross out of the can. You know, it's kind of gray. But then when my mom started making Spam musubi, I was like, oh, my gosh, I love this. 
And I actually had a spam drawstring backpack no. that I would wear in the office. And I got compliments on it in the office. Um, so if I went to like an art review upstairs, like I would carry my laptop and stuff in the spam bag. <laughs> I have no memory of that. How do I not remember the spam backpack? I think because you weren't going to art reviews like when I was. It was like only the art review backpack. Yeah. And I truly want to become like a spam ambassador. So I'm hoping that, <laughs> which is a word that I made up. Uh, That's but, too yeah, good. But yeah, I'm hoping this podcast can help me get to my dream. All right. So this is really about, at least in your spam ambassador platform. Yeah. I'll let you guide. I'll let you guide here. But I do, we're talking about a particular recipe that's on the site for spam masubi. But before we talk mm-hmm. about that recipe, tell us just a little bit more about what spam is. Oh my gosh. I mean, spam, I don't totally know what's in it, to be honest. I don't even know if this is like okay for me to say, but it's like, I just know it's mystery pig parts. So here, according to Hormel Foods, which is the brand that produces spam, it's pork with ham meat added. So pork plus pork, okay. salts, water, potato starch, sugar, and sodium nitrate. And I also read that potato starch was added because it used to get this sort of like gelatinous layer on top in the can. So the potato starch soaks up the fat or the gelatin or whatever and keeps it looking fresh. Wow. I wonder when they added that because to me what's hard is – the layer of gray fat is like part of the spam experience. It's like seeing this the gray liquid sort of like seep out of the can or kind of crown the top. Yeah. And when was the first time that you remember having spam masubi? Probably in Hawaii when I was visiting my grandma. She lives in Honolulu area. I guess specifically Kulio'o Valley. And that's where a lot of my extended family lives too on my dad's side. So I remember we would usually go visit my grandma for New Year's. New Year's, I think, for everyone is like a big food event, or at least in my family it is. So I remember like going to my aunt's house and having platters of sashimi and tubs of rice and like mochi soup and also like spam musubi. Yeah. So that's why I remember first having it. It's just like these little logs of fried spam and then like sticky rice and then like a moistened layer of nori around it like dried seaweed and they're like a common snack food around hawaii right like you can find them in like gas stations and convenience stores yeah you can see them in gas stations just lining counters there's a couple cafes in hawaii that just focus on spam musubi so there are some places where they make it fresh so the seaweed is still crispy and it's super portable like you would not be a spam ambassador if you weren't showing up at parties with spam I know. I feel like I couldn't even claim to want to attain that goal if I wasn't trying to spread the gospel of spam everywhere I went. Okay, so let's talk through how this recipe actually comes together. So the way I make the spam musubi is I start by cooking the rice. Like that's 50% of it. So I use like a short grain rice, like a Japanese rice. And then while that is on its way, I'll then prepare the spam. So I like jiggle it out of the container it's very like physical experience in terms of, like you open the can and then you, you mm-hmm. like shove it out and you have to, it always gets stuck at some point. So you kind of have to like shake it a little bit. Then it oh my God. out. Can we get some like sound effect of like opening the can of spam and like the popping sound it makes? Yeah, it's like a splat. Yeah, it's splat. Okay. 
So you splat the spam. <laughs> yeah, I splat it in, and it just looks really scary and gross, but you just go with it. So I'll cut it, depending on like how much spam you want in your musubi. Then I'll pan fry it. I don't add any other oil or anything or any other fat because there's so much in it already. So I'll just like brown it on each side. Just so you get like a nice little crust. It's like caramelized a little bit. Mm. And then one thing that my mom did that now I do now is she'll then turn off the heat and then she'll almost like deglaze it in a sense with soy sauce. And this is really nice because then you get like this nice glazy part mm-hmm. of it. So I'll kind of turn it a couple times. And so it'll just like kind of reduce and you have like this salty, sweet glaze that's pretty thin on the Spam. The cool thing about the fact that it has the sugar built into the meat is that you can get that caramelization pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about assembly. Okay, so this is very important. There is actually a contraption that is a spam musubi press. Yeah. Wait, so it's two pieces. Yeah, so it's two pieces. And almost like a butter dish with like a top that fits into the hole. And it's also not attached, so I can wash it. So this one is acrylic, which means like the rice sometimes can stick to it. So I usually will wet it in between the layers. The first layer, I will put the nori, which is the dried seaweed. Usually I get like these big square sheets that are from like any Asian supermarket and I'll just fold it in half. And that usually is the width of the Spam Musubi press. I'll usually put it in the middle of the length of the actual seaweed And then just put like a couple tablespoons of rice. Should be like cooked and like cooled down at this point. Okay. Then I'll press it with my press. Okay. Um, I don't (laughs) press it too hard, but I don't want it to like all fall out. So it should be like relatively like intact. Right. And what if I don't have a press? If you don't have a press, then I would just use the can itself to like just smash it down. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to make. And then like a lot of people wrap it in like a plastic cling wrap kind of thing. I'll put it in like a plastic container and bring it with me to a party. Yes. Sounds so good. I hope that we've sold any skeptics on the joys of Spam and Spam Misubi. I think you're doing a great job at Spambassadoring. And thank you for coming on the podcast to talk all about it. Yes. It is clearly a passion of mine. I hope we can eat it together again someday. Yes. We're going to take a quick break. Elise is going to go add Spambassador to her LinkedIn. And when we get back, we will hop into our conversation with Sheldon Simeon. I'm back with Chef Sheldon Simeon talking about his journey after Top Chef after he moved back to Hawaii. Sheldon, when you came back, you opened your first restaurant, Tin Roof, right? Correct. Yeah, Tin Roof restaurant, my own. And Tin Roof is right next to the airport in Maui, which feels important. Why did you choose to open it near the airport? Well, I think the location was lucky. It was a restaurant that fed the community for 20 plus years. It was a Okazuya bento shop by a humble Japanese family. And I had the opportunity to open it in that spot and take over that legacy. So being close to the airport is a benefit because of uh, visitors and they come in and in and out of Hawaii, out of Maui, and they get to taste a little bit of Hawaii. Yeah. And I think it feels very representative of what seems to be your mission there, which is it's a place where 
both locals and tourists alike can find something to enjoy. How would you describe Tin Roof? And tell us about the <laughs> tell us about the menu. Well, I wanted to open a spot that showcased local favorites. You know, maybe not the things that uh, you would automatically think of what Hawaii cuisine is, but definitely comfort food in a fun and a creative way. So, you know, small menu that we could execute properly. Delicious, bold flavors that represented the food that we eat as locals. Yeah, it's done pretty well. <laughs> Comfort food for me is as the food that I crave when I leave these islands. So it's a lot of time it is a bowl of poke and poi or some mochiko chicken or just some quick fried chopstick. Tell us some more about the mochiko chicken. What is that? So our mochiko chicken, uh, I guess the tin roof has become famous for it. It's essentially a chicken that is battered in mochiko flour so it has a super crazy crispy texture we took it another level by marinating it in ginger and kochujang and sake and then we top it off with sumiso and a korean aioli over the top of it some furukake and some rice crackers mm-hmm. but uh, just these levels of deliciousness that is thrown onto this fried chicken oh textures too sounds so good yeah and then you opened a second restaurant, Lineage, which was more fine dining. What was your vision there? Yeah, the idea of Lineage uh, was right there in the, in the name of the restaurant. I wanted to celebrate the lineage of where Hawaii cuisine came from and celebrating the farmers and the ingredients and the techniques that is special to Hawaii and presented it in a fun and uh, modern technical way. I think the idea of Hawaii cuisine, a lot of people only know a smidget of it. And there is these special moments and history that never have a spotlight unless you're invited into someone's home or be able to go to a baby luau or a party or or spend a weekend fishing with, with a family. So to have these moments to showcase these techniques of all the way back to the ancient Hawaiians of preserving fish and using seaweeds to flavor food. It was our opportunity to showcase all of those traditions of the Hawaiians. So what's an example of a dish at Lineage that brings all of these elements together? I think one of the dish that kind of brings everything together was actually our poi mochi with chicken liver. And the reason why I say that is like, we meld together all of these different moments in history of Hawaii. So we use pa'i'ai, which is pounded taro, but we fermented that. So that's like the basis of it. Then we introduced uh, mochi to it, the next layer of history with like the Japanese coming to Hawaii to work on the sugarcane fields. And then the chicken liver pate is like this idea of modernizing and this new age of cuisine. So it's like this different parts of history of Hawaii coming together in one dish. Yeah. So... The menu and the sort of upscale pricing, I guess, of this restaurant (laughs) compared to Tin Roof. What was the thought behind that? The ingredients and the techniques and the ideas is what you're paying for, is the premium, right? It's like how many years it took to learn how to make pa'iai and rediscover some of the taro varieties that were used to make this poi. You know, it's not just something that you can just go on Pinterest and, and Google. You know, there was 
moments that we had to research this and talk to families and come up with these ideas. And we're using the best fish, the best pork that we could find. And those are generational knowledge that is priceless to get these ingredients. And that was the premium that you're paying for. That's a really great way of putting it. So this past February, you left Lineage, actually before you were nominated for a James Beard Award. What led you to step away? You know, we we did an amazing thing with the team at Lineage, uh, opening this restaurant and and dishes that were amazing, and we had this amazing restaurant. But the thing that fueled me and that was my inspiration from it all was family. My greatest inspiration and my greatest moments and memories are sitting with my family and spending time with cooking with my dad and enjoying these times with my cousins and having food and sitting around the table. And here I was celebrating that in my restaurant, but not living it, you know, chef life, putting in long hours yeah, to work and, and doing it. And between the two restaurants, I was, I was never home. Yet here I am talking to <laughs> everyone else. It's like this dish was inspired by me cooking my with family. my dad and my family. And I was being a hypocrite. And uh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I was at a point in my career where my kids were more important to me than, than anything else. It's not as though you were lacking in work, though. You also managed to write a cookbook in the last <laughs> couple of years. Uh, your cookbook came out this past spring. It's called Cook Real Hawaii. What do you hope readers take away from reading it and cooking from it? What I hope when readers look at my cookbook and, and cook from it is that they have a deep appreciation of how amazing these islands are. And what it took to to live here and all of these things come together as one, as on the plate in like this harmony that is that is Hawaii. And uh, they can see the history of why this place is so special. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Thank you. Well, you are such a kind and generous and talented ambassador for the food of Hawaii. It's really just a privilege to have been able to work with you on these stories and to read your story in Elise's profile and to get to talk to you today. And I'm very excited to see what you do next, even if all that is is raising your four children, which is <laughs> no small feat. Thank you so much. Aloha. Thank you to our guest, Sheldon Simeon, for sharing his story on the podcast today. And Elise Namine for our way too in-depth look at how to make Spam Musubi. You can read Elise's full piece covering Sheldon's career and how he's redefining Hawaiian cuisine online. And check out Sheldon's book, Cook Real Hawaii. We'll add a link to purchase in our show notes. Be sure to give Sheldon and Elise a follow. You can find Sheldon on Instagram at Chef Wonder and Elise at Elise I, E-L-Y-S-E with an I at the end. And you can find more of Elise's writing and Sheldon's Guide to Maui all on bonappetit.com. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps keep us food people employed. And you can follow Bon Appetit on Instagram at Bon Appetit Mag and on Twitter at Bon Appetit. 
Food People is produced by Bonapetit in partnership with Pod People. Vishnu Vallabhaneni is our senior producer. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Madison Lusby is our production manager. And Morgan Foose and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. This episode was engineered by Trey Booty, and the music is by DJ Newmark. June Kim and I provide editorial direction for the series. Special thanks to Matt Sav, Nico Steele, and Julie Shen. I'm your host, Amanda Shapiro, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.